I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. We're on a mission to make you remarkable. Helping me in this episode is Jerry Silver. He's a professor in the Department of Neurosciences at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. His work focuses on developing treatments for spinal cord injuries. His ultimate goal is to develop a way to overcome the lack of regeneration after a spinal cord injury. He has received numerous prestigious awards, including the Ameritech Prize, the Christopher Reeve Joan Irvine Research Medal, and the Jacob Javits Neuroscience Investigator Award. In 2011, he was honored as a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Join us now as we delve into the excitement advancements in nerve regeneration research with the potential for groundbreaking treatments for spinal cord injuries. I'm Guy Kawasaki, this is Remarkable People, and now, here is the remarkable Jerry Silver. I'm not a doctor or a neurosurgeon or a neuroscientist, so go slow, okay? I will, I'll keep it simple, I'll keep it simple. Okay, first question, what does going into phase 1B2A of NVG 291 mean? It means everything for me, and it means, hopefully, fingers crossed, everything for the people that are involved with that trial. So the 2B part means that the company, NerveGen, has had success in normal people, dosing them, and they have tolerated it well and in very high concentrations, even much higher than we used in our animal models, and no no appreciable side effects so so with that information that the the drug is safe at least it, it won't cause harm the fda has now allowed nervgen the company that licensed our peptide let's call it a pept i'll tell you what a peptide is later have licensed our peptide to use in spinal cord injured people although the numbers of people are going to be fairly small uh, i think around 20 and this phase 2B trial in human spinal cord injured patients is going to occur in the next few weeks. So our podcast, You and Me, is happening exactly at the time when the company is just about ready to start in humans, patients with spinal cord injury. So that's very exciting um, for me and it marks a culmination of 40 years of my work going all the way to, to, to humans with spinal cord injury and, and fingers crossed that it's going to help them. Helped our animals get a lot better after spinal cord injury. Now we have to see if that this same peptide will help humans get better after their spinal cord injuries. These peptides are going to be injected into their spinal cords? No. So the way this peptide works is through the the tissues of the body. You, you don't have to touch the spinal cord at all. That was our initial goal, actually, to, tr to try not to touch the spinal cord. It's already injured. and You really don't want to get in there and start putting needles into the spinal cord itself. That can cause even more damage. This peptide is given just subcutaneously, just under the skin, and they're going to target the subcutaneous fat area in the belly. So the injections are going to be given sub-Q 
in the belly of these people. They'll probably get an injection once a day, like an insulin needle. You know, you don't touch the spinal cord. The peptide is designed to have a vehicle attached to it. So it takes the peptide from that area, just under the skin, into the brain and spinal cord. All, it just happens automatically. And when do you expect to see changes? How long does it take? In our animal models, using this peptide, the changes occur actually relatively quickly. In our rat models of chronic spinal cord injury, when we give the peptide, we saw changes in our rat model of spinal cord injury within about a week or two. That's when the changes started to occur. And then, then they continue to improve over time. So the answer to your question is, if it's going to work, we're going to start to see changes right away, within weeks. I, I listened to a podcast with you, and one of the points you made is that some of these results take weeks and weeks and months before they appear. How do you know that we got to keep giving these injections or it's not going to work? Where's the dividing line? Well, the dividing line will be if there are no side effects of the continuing injections into these patients every day, so they don't get worse. You will ask them, how do you feel? And then they're going to be tested for their ability to move, what they can feel. They'll get a neurological exam. And there's also going to be the use of physiology. So there'll be physiological recording equipment, recording their muscle activity from outside the body. And if there are no side effects and the patients report improvements if they say gee i can move a muscle that i never moved before or i can feel my bladder my spasms have changed my i i can feel my the bowels a little bit better so i know when i need to do a rectal manipulation so i can i can poop so anything that the patients start to report that seems to be an improvement and by testing the patients neurologically, if they continue to improve and no side effects, we could give the drug for as long as they wish. Uh, I don't know what the length of time, I don't know all the details of the phase 2B trial, how long they're expecting to go. I think it's several months. But there's no reason that they couldn't go longer if there are no side effects. If the patients continue to improve, and they, they report improvements. Why, why stop? Uh, the company will have to stop at one point to report right. the data. But in the future, you, you could just go on and keep on giving the drug as long as the patients improve. You could give the drug for years if it's safe, a, a year or more easily. And okay. that's the key. Once the patients stabilize and they, they say, well, I'm not getting any better. I've been taking the drug now for eight months or whatever. And I seem to have plateaued. And there's nothing else that's happening, then, then you could stop. Uh, and and that, that would be a stopping point to see what else you might do. But there's no reason that a patient who is receiving the drug couldn't then start to do a, a rehab program. And they'll probably, there's going to be rehab all the way along during the injections. Uh, they might opt to get like an epidural stimulation therapy at the end of this drug trial. So they could, they could do more. There could be a waiting period between the end of the first delivery of drugs and, and maybe a second dose a little bit later. As long as there are no side effects, you can be as 
creative as you'd like. I guess the answer to your question is the company is going to stop at a certain time. That's already planned, but you don't have to. You can keep on going if you want to. I hope okay. that's clear. Yeah. And can you trace this all the way back to your work with nerve cells and pupils? Is it a continuous path from your days of ophthalmology oh, you went through to spinal cord? You went really far back in my life. That's where it all it all started. <laughs> I did. In the Oh my goodness. That's an interesting story. Yeah, just the way I have run my career is to start with an idea that I had many, many years ago, over 40 years ago in the mid-80s when I was studying the development of the eye all the way to now, to this moment uh, in time talking with you. It's been a continuous path forward. It's been a long journey primarily because my, my the questions I was asking were a bit outrageous, uh, out of the box. Many people didn't believe what I was talking about. But you bring up this issue about the eye. So in the mid-1980s, I was asking a question that really concerned developmental biology of the brain. Or, and the eye is part of the brain, the retina. And the question that I asked way back then, that was very, that's a very, that's a very long time ago, was whether there were boundaries or, or barrier molecules uh, in the in the developing retina of the eye, that would keep the nerve fibers from going uh, in the wrong direction out of your pupil. That would be bad. It can happen in certain genetic <laughs> mutations. But if your optic nerve fibers would grow out of the front end of your eye, they'd grow all over your cornea, and that would be bad. So I just asked the simple question, well, why don't they turn in the wrong direction? Might there be some kind of a barrier that Mother Nature has built on purpose to keep them from going out of your pupil. And we discovered a family of molecules called proteoglycans, proteoglycans, in that area of the retina, near the pupil. And they're very, very inhibitory. So the word proteoglycan may, may be a, lit, a little bit foreign, but you've seen these molecules on the shelves of any grocery store or pharmacy that sells proteoglycans in a jar. They go by names such as cosamine or glucosamine or Dr. Scholl's anti-joint aging cream. Or, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can, you'll find these cosamine or glucosamine or joint. Osteobiflex is another one. There are a million of them. These are basically ground up proteoglycans, mostly taken from the the hoofs of cattle or the cartilage of sharks. Jeez. <laughs> that's where the proteoglycans are in great abundance. And that's the source of these cartilaginous uh, proteoglycans for you to eat. And the idea is that the, the cartilage of your body and your joints, which get worn down as you get older, are lined with proteoglycans. Uh, proteoglycans are very inhibitory. Uh, that's why your cartilage doesn't have any nerves or blood vessels in it. You, you can bend your ears or wiggle your nose because that's mostly cartilage and it doesn't hurt. The, the, there's no innervation in your cartilage uh, for a reason. It has to be very flexible uh, and bind a lot of water. So the proteoglycans in your cartilage, in your ears and in your nose uh, does not have any blood vessel or, or nerve supply. 
And that's because it's just packed with inhibitory proteoglycans. Uh, they come by a special name, chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan. And it, if you go to the store, some of those uh, bottles will be labeled chondroitin. Uh, or you'll see a cosamine or glucosamine. Basically, it's chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan is what you're buying and eating. Uh, by the way, it's a waste of money. It's already been shown that, that eating that stuff is not going to help your cartilage, although some people swear by it. So, so basically, everybody has heard about proteoglycans if you've shopped in any grocery store. They're very inhibitory, and they're found in cartilage. Now, here we are back in the early 1980s telling people that these cartilaginous molecules that are very inhibitory to nerve growth and blood vessel growth are present in the developing retina of the brain. And they keep your nerve fibers in your retina from going out of your pupil and turning them in the right direction so they exit through your optic nerve. That was the first time in history that anybody had ever said that or thought that or hypothesized that. And that paper was published in Science Magazine. It was, it was quite an important paper. And we could show that if we got rid of the, the, the sugar, the, the glucosamine part, with an enzyme that's called chondroitinase that's made by bacteria, and I'll tell you more about chondroitinase, it, it screwed up the retinal biology. And then the nerves started leaving out of the pupil. So if you got rid of the proteoglycans in the retina, your nerves took the wrong route. And that was really interesting. So the chondroitinase enzyme that we used showed us that it, when I say proteoglycan, so the proteo is the protein part of the molecule, and the sugars are like little chains. The molecules look like bottle brushes. Everybody has seen a bottle brush. There's the metal thing that runs in the center and holds the bristles of the bottle brush. That's what proteoglycans look like. They look like bottle brushes. It's the brushes, the sugars, that are the bad guys. They're the inhibitory ones. And they're called chondroitin sulfate. So the chondroitin sulfate, being inhibitory, can be removed by an enzyme called chondroitin ACE, which means enzyme. And guess who figured out how to get through our defenses? They're bacteria. So there's a kind of bacteria called Proteus vulgaris. Don't get it. It's the worst. They live in swamps. And they have figured out how to eat through our barriers. They, they, they usually enter through the eyes or they enter through uh, the mouth or nose if you go into a swamp. Uh, and they can eat right through the, ba the, the basal lamina structures of our bodies and the basal lamina of our bodies just underneath your skin for instance or underneath the surface of your cornea that's full of proteoglycans too so the basal lamina is another structure in addition to cartilage full of proteoglycans and these bacteria have figured out how to get through them they eat away the barrier with chondroitinase so we use that enzyme to our advantage uh, so that's where it all started 40 years ago looking at the retina, showing that these barrier molecules play a very important role in telling nerves where to grow normally. These people who doubted your discovery, yes. how did they explain the fact that 
these nerve cells didn't grow the wrong direction, if not for something like well, what you were hypothesizing. Well, before I published that paper on the developing retina that, that you amazingly uh, knew about, uh, it was thought that such molecules like proteoglycans don't even exist in the developing right. brain, period. It was thought before I came around thinking about this, that there was no extracellular matrix in the brain at all. There was no such big molecules like proteoglycans in brain. It was too tight. Everything was stuck very close to itself. There's no space to put these molecules. And it was thought that they do not exist in the developing brain or ever. And anyhow, what are these cartilaginous molecules doing in the brain? And many people, even people in my own department, when I was a young assistant professor, said I was studying artifact, that what I was studying was, was ridiculous and, and totally wrong. But there it was. We had antibodies. Uh, and there were these big spaces that I found where these very, so near the pupil of the developing retina were these big openings, these big, large, they looked like holes, Big extra, I call them extracellular lakes. And they were full of proteoglycans because we could see the proteoglycans using antibodies that specifically bound to them and stained them. And I said, here they are. They're, they're sitting there. No, can't be. It's impossible. Brain doesn't have these molecules. You're studying artifact. And I, so I was pretty much a voice in the wilderness for a very, very long time. So I started my studies in the 80s. Uh, we published our first paper on the proteoglycan story in 1990. That was a paper on the spinal cord, which we didn't experiment with using the chondroitinase. And the 1991 paper you mentioned in science was the paper on the retina. That really opened the eyes of the world to the possibility that this might be happening. Because Science Magazine is a very high-impact publication and you have to there's a lot of scrutiny that goes into publishing in science and so they loved it because it was a brand new idea but nonetheless it took over a decade until 2002 uh, for another group in England uh, to reproduce our work for 10 years I was just screaming about this story that this has got to be true <laughs> and doing everything I possibly could to convince people but it was it was not easy so I, I actually lost funding from the National Eye Institute while I was proposing this idea and publishing. People on study sections didn't believe it either. So I lost my funding to do my eye research. And so I had to come up with a new avenue of research, a new direction. So I thought, all right, so let's ask another question. Let's see if these same barrier molecules, these chondroitin sulfate proteoglycans, let's call them CSPGs for short. Maybe they reappear after injury to the brain or spinal cord, or they may appear in neurodegenerative diseases like ALS or Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease where nerve cells are dying. Maybe these molecules that are normally playing a role as a barrier in the embryo, making a guardrail where you want one, reappear after injury, but now these same molecules block regeneration. So we made lesions in the spinal cord. So here we are again, just right around 1991. We started to make lesions with scalpel blades in the spinal cord. And by goodness, 
there they were again. They're in the embryo, in the places where you don't want nerves to grow. (laughs) Then they disappear. Jerry, Jerry, just for clarification, you're talking about spinal cords of rats, right? Not people. Yeah, of course. Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to go... Uh, there's a movie I can't remember its name right away, but with Gene Hackman, who, who plays a doctor who is cutting the spinal cords of people and curing them. What's the name of that movie? Anyhow, uh, Gene Hackman played a, a bad guy. Hugh Grant was a young physician who found out about Gene Hackman and, and stopped him from from doing this. So that, okay. I'm not. I can't. Darn it! I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was with Gene Hackman and Hugh Grant. But anyhow, okay. no, this is rats <laughs> with IRB <laughs> approval and, and IACA approval. You, you can operate. You have to have IRB approval to operate on humans. That's not what I did. <laughs> the lesions that we make in the rats are not so terrible that they can't function at all. So it was a small lesion in the spinal cord. And when we did that, the, these proteoglycan molecules that played a normal role as a guardrail in development reappeared after injury and that was very exciting because now the idea was oh maybe mother nature is just using these molecules over again to form a a wall a barrier around the injury and that's one of the roles uh, of these molecules is to form a barrier and that barrier around the injury site is called a scar very much like the scar that you would get in your skin uh, if you had a big enough injury. So if you cut yourself re- really badly and you have a scar that's observable and it's big enough, you will notice that scar is numb. You won't have any feeling. And the reason is the scar in your skin, if it's big enough, is full of proteoglycans. So no nerve fibers will grow in there and the blood vessels are underneath it. So that's why it's numb. You're not bleeding anymore and you're not infected, but that happens. The same thing happens in the brain and spinal cord. You get a scar. And that scar in the spinal cord, after you stab it with a knife, it is a wall that encompasses all the inflammatory cells. It makes a, a wall around all the debris that has accumulated and all the blood that has flowed into the spinal cord. And that scar serves an important function as a wall. Uh, however, the problem is in the presence of proteoglycans that are in the scar, there's no nerve regeneration. Even though they try, they try to regrow, but they can't. And they get stuck in the scar. And they can't move forward at all. And one of the reasons they get stuck is because of the proteoglycan. What I don't understand about this is all of this is happening at the molecular level and you're explaining it as if, oh, you can just see this. So, Oh, like, yeah, you can see it. You cut sections. You, you can literally with, see it? With your eyes, yeah, if you have a good imagination. And in, in sections through the brain or spinal cord, you can stain the nerve fibers and you can stain the proteoglycans and you can see the interaction. And if you look at the cut ends of the nerve fibers, they get all balled up and swollen, and they're basically stuck. So in the adult, in the presence of proteoglycans, I just told you that the tips of the nerve fibers that have been cut don't die. The nerve cells are still alive. The nerve fibers are cut. And instead of turning like they do in the embryo, 
instead of turning away from the pupil, in the adult, the nerves that are cut get stuck. There's a difference. And I'll explain that because of the receptor that nerve gen is blocking. In the adult, the nerve fibers, when they're cut, upregulate a very important sticky receptor. And let's call it PTP sigma. It's a very sticky receptor. You can think of it like Velcro. So the proteoglycans in the scar would be the cloth, the loop, the fuzzy part of Velcro. Right. So that part would be the scar. And let's think about the cut end of the nerve fiber as the hook of Velcro, hook and loop. Now in the embryo, the hook part is very small, not very many hooks at all. And in the embryo, in the presence of proteoglycans, the nerve fibers turn away. They turn away. They go in the opposite direction. They have a different growth motor. They have more flexibility. So what the nerve fibers do in the embryo is basically to get stuck, but they can back branch. So as the nerve is going towards the the pupil uh, in the embryo, if it would try to do that, it, it gets stuck, but then it can back branch. It forms a branch more towards the cell body, and it goes in the right direction. Uh, Adult neurons can't do that. Uh, They don't have the ability to back branch and turn away. They just go forward, and they go right into the proteoglycan. They cannot back branch. And now the hook, the receptor, is really big, and there's a lot of them. So the adult nerve cell, when it's cut, has a lot of hooks, and they're really big. And so now when they see the proteoglycan, just like Velcro, they get stuck right in it and you can't get free. Unless, of course, you get rid of this hook and look interaction, the bond. How can you do it? One way you could do it is to get rid of the loops. The loops are the CSPGs. So how do you do it? Guess what? You inject chondroitinase. That's the first thing we did early on in our career. So in the early 2000s, actually a group in England made a spinal cord injury and that chondroitinase enzyme I told you about that those bacteria make to eat through our defenses, a group in England made a spinal cord injury and injected chondroitinase into the spinal cord. And they showed nice regeneration and functional recovery. So they, they actually did the first experiment on a spinal cord injury model. In my lab, we were focusing on the retina and the visual system. It was very difficult because the optic nerve is so small. But So a group in England in 2002, spinal cord injury, they removed the, the loops with chondroitinase. And when they did that, by injecting the spinal cord, they saw regeneration and functional recovery, 2002. So I, I had discovered these molecules in 1990. We published, and it took 11 years until 2002 until a group in England actually published. And we did, in our lab, a lot of other studies. And chondroitinase has been used to improve recovery after lots of different kinds of traumatic injuries to the spinal cord, but also the brain. It's been used in models of Alzheimer's disease. It's been used in models of stroke. It's been used, and again, in models of spinal cord injury. It's been used in models of multiple sclerosis. So the chondroitinase enzyme has been used hundreds of times in many labs and published.
And people now surely believe it's now a major part of the story. After all this time, finally, people are understanding the importance of proteoglycans in the brain. They're real. It's not artifact. Then we move forward another few years because chondroitinase is not the best therapeutic for spinal cord injury. And the reason is it's bacterial. It's not stable at 37 degrees, which is body temperature. So this is a bacterial enzyme. You put it into the body or into the spinal cord, and it doesn't last very long. It likes to be cold, like the swamp. And so when you warm it up, it loses its potency. So it doesn't last very long. Also, it has to be injected right where you want it to get rid of the hooks. So you have to inject it into the lesion of the spinal cord and elsewhere to get it to work. And you don't want to put needles into the spinal cord or brain to get rid of the hook, the proteoglycan. There might be a better way. So now, if you have any questions, ask now, because I'll tell you about how to get rid of the hooks. <laughs> well, okay. So the NVG-291 is yeah. not that theory of direct injection, obviously. You're saying subcutaneous no. in the stomach. So That's what's the right. theory Good of NVG-291? All right. Now we're going to talk about the hooks. So you, you can ruin Velcro attachments two ways. Get rid of the hooks or get rid of the loops. Yeah. If you get rid of either one, Velcro is not going to work. So I told you about how do you get rid of the hooks using chondroidinase. That's the CSPG part. That's the loop. So what about the hook? Who is the hook? So the hook is the so-called receptor. It binds to the proteoglycans. People didn't know what the receptor for the inhibitory actions of CSPGs was for many years. So we discovered that proteoglycans, the CSPGs, were barrier molecules in the mid-1980s. And we published our first paper in 1990. This sticky phenomena is, is mediated by some kind of interaction between the proteoglycan, which is the loop, and some receptor that the nerve cell or other cells make. But we didn't discover what that receptor was until 2009. So you're talking almost 20 years, searching all over the world, what's the receptor? Who is the hook? And it turns out to be this family of very sticky receptors called the Lar family. And one of the members of the Lar family is PTP Sigma. Let's just call it Sigma. Sigma is a very sticky receptor. It causes uh, adhesion, stickiness, when it binds to CSPGs, just like the hook binds to the loop. Sigma is the hook. Another way to screw up Velcro attachments is to get rid of the hook. That's sigma. How do we do it? We could find some enzyme that dissolves it, or we can find some drug that blocks it or modulates it, gets rid of it, okay? Block the hook or cut it off in a sense. And since we now discovered what the hook was, it's PTP sigma, let's call it sigma, a sticky, very sticky receptor. Its function normally is to create what's called a synapse in the developing brain. The synapse, which is 
I think Greek or Latin for the word kiss, K-I-S-S, a kiss is a nice attachment, a pleasant one, is it a nice kiss? <laughs> and so the synapse, the kiss between two cells makes a connection between an axon, a nerve fiber, and a dendrite of another cell. And th this receptor, sigma, is involved with normal synaptogenesis. It's a very sticky receptor. But this same sticky receptor is appearing in great abundance on the cut nerve fiber. When the nerve is cut in a spinal cord injury or a stroke or in a degenerative disease, it upregulates, it increases the amount of hooks. It changes the, 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 the type and the amount of the hooks. They make way more. Now there are zillions of hooks around on the cut nerve fibers. And don't forget the proteoglycans are present in the scar. So they make lots more of the receptor. So how do we get rid of it? And in my lab, we decided to block the receptor by using what's called a peptide. And that peptide would bind to the hook and it would block it. It would make it non-functional. It's like taking the part of Velcro that has the hooks and smearing it with molasses or glue. Just cover up all the hooks. Right, so now they can't even see the pro they can't hook onto the proteoglycans. So that peptide uh, we call intracellular sigma peptide or ISP. And in our Nature paper in 2015, we described this peptide for the very first time. Uh, the peptide has a shuttle attached to it. It's called TAT, T-A-T. It's a sequence of amino acids that helps the peptide get across membranes. It's based on uh, HIV uh, uh, infectability. HIV can get in, into your body easily, mostly through sexual contact. And that TAT part is a shuttle that allows that virus to go through your tissues. So we used TAT, T-A-T, and attached it to our peptide, which blocks the receptor. It's called a wedge domain. So the part of the receptor that, that causes its activity is called a wedge. That's not so critical. So our, our peptide blocks the receptor and gets to, through the tissue, even if you just inject it j just subcutaneously under the uh, skin of the stomach. So it's a TAT peptide, T-A-T slash peptide. And that you can put anywhere. Because TAT, like HIV, takes that peptide all the way into the brain and spinal... It takes it all over your body. So you don't have to what? touch the spinal cord. You just what? inject it subcutaneously <laughs> on, in the, under the skin of your stomach or your back skin. So then it gets into the brain and spinal cord and it blocks the hook. Now the receptor is blind. It can't see the proteoglycans and the nerves regenerate. And they sprout like crazy. They no longer see the loops. They just grow right past them. I sure, have some please. dumb questions. Uh, please, the dumber the better. <laughs> okay. okay, dumb question number one is, if you're blocking this process, how come now all of a sudden you give this to patients and things aren't growing into their pupil? Haven't oh, you stopped that process? Very good question. So remember what I said just a few minutes ago. Let's stress it. When the nerve fibers are damaged by a spinal cord injury or a stroke, or by a neurodegenerative process, those nerve fibers 
upregulate, increase dramatically the number of those hooks. They okay. increase dramatically the number and packing density of that receptor. So they make lots more for some unknown reason. So now if you give the peptide, those are the first cell types that are affected because they have so much receptor. So you can play around okay. with the concentration, how long you give it. And those are the first ones that are targeted because they make so much. Now, okay. that's not to say that your question is dumb at all. Your question was actually brilliant because one wonders <laughs> if you give this peptide for such a long period of time that it changes the way the connections in the brain are hooked up or when the nerves regenerate when you give the peptide are they going to be able to make connections or are they going to just keep growing wildly and the answer to that question is in the animals we give the peptide for seven weeks not forever and then we stop and then the animals continue to get better after we stop giving the treatment it's conceivable that in the presence of the peptide for very long periods of time, those regenerating nerve fibers don't make very good connections because we need the receptor to make the kiss, the synapse. So now you stop giving the peptide and you ask me, how long do you give it? That was one of the first questions you asked me, right. how, how long? And we really don't know what's the optimal time. Or should you give it every other day? Then the nerves that grow can make a connection. Or do you stop after two months and the nerves that have regenerated, they can make connections. Or do you give it for a year and then stop? See, we, we really just don't know the, the optimal timing and position for the best route of administration yet. Uh, that's the okay. that's something the company has to work out, and, and the best way to work it out for people is going to be in patients. So the very first patients, okay. let's if they report that they are still improving when NerveGen wishes to stop, in that trial they'll have to stop when they said they would, but they can okay. do another trial where they give the peptide for much longer, or in much higher okay. concentrations, or deliver the peptide in a different place. That could be better. Okay, dumb okay. question number two. Please. Are you essentially saying that this treatment doesn't fix the problem, it enables the human body to fix the problem because the process was being blocked? That's right, very good. Again, a brilliant hypothesis. Basically, what we're doing is helping the body, and in this instance, the spinal cord, fix itself. The nerves have the capacity to grow, not as fast as their embryonic counterparts, but they can grow. They can grow towards proper connections. Uh, we have seen that in our animals, uh, the animals get better, not worse. So the nerves that are regenerating and sprouting seem to be able to find the proper partners to connect with. Uh, the animals don't throw themselves off the table that uh, they don't do strange things. There's no unbelievable spasticity or weird dystonic type of postures. Uh, the animals get better. Uh, they can walk better. Okay. And we just had a paper accepted for publication. Uh, they can actually use their fingers better, depending on where you put the lesion. If you give the peptide then, they, they can use their hands better. 
their fingers better and they can walk better, not worse. So somehow Mother Nature is allowing the connections to be functional rather than non-functional. Now, I, I can say one thing. There's another paper that you might know about that has been published where we studied the use of chondroitinase, not the peptide, the chondroitinase enzyme in a breathing recovery model. And in that paper, we report two very important things. One, the longer you wait after the injury to give the enzyme or the peptide, the better the result. What? The longer you wait after injury, the more chronic the condition, the better the results are when we get rid of the hook and loop interaction. There's some kind of reconnections that are forming very slowly, we think, that are being smothered by the proteoglycans. All right, so that's very important. So people who have very long chronic spinal cord injury should not be depressed. As wow. a matter of fact, they should be quite happy. So there's wow. no reason that 20 to 30 to 40 years after your accident, that cause of paralysis, there's a lot of new connections that have been formed uh, in the spinal cord, in the area of the lesion and elsewhere that are being smothered by the hook and loop interaction. Now, when we give the peptide or the enzyme, those connections that are smothered wake up very, very rapidly. Do you remember when you asked me how long it would take for people to get better? And I said it would happen very quickly? Within weeks, that's what we've seen. The longer we wait, actually using the peptide or the enzyme in acute injury was not nearly as good as chronic. Up next on Remarkable People. I wouldn't call myself a pioneer, but in the modern age of science, that goes back to my earning my PhD, most people in the neurosciences studied neurons. And I guess it's just the way I am. I just like to do stuff that other people don't do. And I have a weird stubborn streak. So if I see something that I, I'm sure is right, because I see it in front of my own eyes, I become very persistent. Become a little more remarkable with each episode of Remarkable People. It's found on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome back to Remarkable People with Guy Kawasaki. I was going to ask you for clarification on this, and I think you just explained. This, this interview I listened to of you said that there was a very fortunate accident yeah. where your research assistants went down and looked at rats that were like 18 months ago. That's right. And lo and behold, the rats yeah, that had this for could, 18 months had great progress. Is this what you're alluding to? That's exactly right. Most people in, in our business, spinal cord injury business, the field, don't study chronic injury. They're very high risk although high-reward experiments. They're extremely expensive because you have to keep the animals around so long and animal care is expensive. But my student, who was an expert in the area of breathing, spinal cord injury that affects breathing in the spinal cord. So this is a very high cervical injury, which, by the way, most people get. Most people are injured in the spinal cord in the cervical area of the neck, 
because it's so flexible and tends to get hurt. He had made lesions in our rats at a high cervical level that paralyzed their diaphragm on one side. You can't make the lesion all the way because the animals can't breathe. So it's a partial lesion that paralyzes half the diaphragm. And we were injecting the chondroitinase enzyme and using our peptide acutely after that injury and seeing very poor recovery. Uh, almost not. I was actually very depressed when my student, his name was Warren Allelane, first arrived in the lab. I said, well, Warren, let's do something else. Uh, and we did. But he had lesioned uh, 12 animals, 12 rats, uh, in the high cervical spinal cord. They were in the animal facility, and he'd forgotten about them, that they were even there. And he forgot about them for over a year. And, and he discovered them one afternoon and came up to my lab. I will never forget the day he came into my office. He says, Jerry, guess what? I'm sorry, but I lesioned a dozen animals over a year ago and forgot about them. They're in the basement. What are we going to do with them? I said, well, I don't know. We can't throw them away. It cost me about $5,000 just to keep them down in the basement in the animal facility. So I said, let's, let's inject chondroitinase and see what happens. Uh, this is before the peptide. So he did. And, 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 and he came running back uh, in the next few days to Jerry, the animals are breathing. It's incredible. So, so then we needed more help. So another six months passed and we hired a postdoctoral student who, who's from England. Her name was Pippa Warren. So it was Warren Allelane and Pippa Warren. And Pip, when Pippa came, she, she did this study really well. And, and the recovery of the diaphragm on the side that had the lesion. So the animal had been paralyzed essentially all of its life. And within one week after injection of the chondroitinase enzyme into the spinal cord near where the motor nerve cells are for, that move the diaphragm, within one week, they started to breathe. And within two weeks... After injecting the enzyme, the breathing, the, the amount and the depth, the quality of the breath was equal to that of the other side. It was completely normal. Huh. Completely huh. normal. Complete recovery of diaphragm function. And we also saw improvements in the ability of the same animal to use the forepaw which is also paralyzed from that lesion on the same side. Now, here's the other part of the story I was going to tell you. So from those experiments, we learned that longer is better. Uh, we found that an optimal time after the injury to get recovery uh, is you have to wait at least three months, at least. And almost nobody in my field waits three months. They, they wait one week uh, or they wait one day. And then they treat, and then they report their results. But minimum of three months. But the longer you wait, the better. And the huh. quality of, of the breath and, and the amount of, of unusual changes is very small. Now, let me add the second part. In some of the animals, if we gave the enzyme to the animals that were about three months after their injury, and we pushed the animals too hard with their respiratory therapy, and that therapy was called intermittent hypoxia. So we basically forced the animals to go to Denver 
uh, for five minutes and then come back to Cleveland <laughs> for five minutes. So they go up to Denver and breathe low oxygen air. Then they come back to Cleveland for five minutes. They breathe normal oxygen air and back to Denver and then back to Cleveland. And you wrote and you alternate that. That's called intermittent hypoxia. That's a bre- that's, that's, that's respiratory rehab. When we did that in our animals, and these are mostly three months after injury, when we pushed too hard, when we gave the enzyme and lots of intermittent hypoxia, then we saw some problems in the diaphragm. It was too much of a good thing. Huh. Uh, it, it was bad. The side of the diaphragm that had recovered was now spazzing and, and not breathing properly. Now, that would go away. Uh, it would fix itself in about two weeks. But you don't want your patients to have a spastic diaphragm or a spastic arm for any time at all. So we found that okay. you, can't, you can't push too hard. So the amount of rehab you give has to be the right amount, not too much at least for the diaphragm. And that's a warning. I can explain that. So what happens is when you give the enzyme and you give intermittent hypoxia, one of the nerve fiber tracts that regenerates and sprouts like crazy makes a nerve transmitter called serotonin. Uh, Some of you may have heard about serotonin. You may have because serotonin is really critical for anxiety. And SSRIs like Prozac increase the amount of serotonin that's interacting with its receptor in the brain. So more serotonin is good if you're anxious. SSRIs. But too much serotonin, way too much is bad. That's the way Mother Nature is. It's got to be the right balance. Too little is bad. Too much is bad. And we found out that in the animals that had this bizarre spastic diaphragms there was too much serotonin we, we had a back down okay yeah okay. so so people can overdose on ssris and they get horrible spasms and they get crazy hallucinations so you you can take okay. too much so that's now, one of the drawbacks you can't push too hard it, it seems to me the way you describe all these discoveries over the course of 30 40 Boy. years It's pretty exciting and has major ramifications. And yet I read that if it wasn't for some dentist whose daughter became a paraplegic, we might not be having this conversation. So I, I don't understand, like, why was it necessary for this dentist to rekindle this interest? That's a very important question. Let me tell you a little bit about the story that led to the licensing of our peptide and the establishment of NerveGen. We had published our nature paper on the discovery of our peptide in 2015. The receptor itself, Sigma, the hook, was discovered in 2009. So between 2009 and 2015, we were trying to figure out a way to smother or cut off the hook. And we had made some advancements that were unpublished before 2015. The work was being done, but it hadn't been published yet. Our story was pretty ripe already around 2012, 2013. And fortunately, our university has some connections with Big Pharma and actually invited Big Pharma, and this one happened to be GlaxoSmithKline, to Case Western Reserve 
to hear the good stuff that was happening at the university. One of the tech transfer people at Case Western was from GSK and knew some of the big shots in that company, invited them to come. And they said, okay. And so we had a GSK day at Case Western, and they marched a couple of dozen <laughs> pe- labs in front of these guys. I was the last roadshow of the day. It was around 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon. Everyone was tired. And I presented our story about our peptide and our walking rats and the chondroitin sulfate receptor interaction. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And we, we talked more and we actually formed a partnership. And this was around 2010, 2011. And we were rolling along really well. Actually, GlaxoSmithKline gave us some money to do some very critical dosing experiments. They assigned a group of people at GSK to us. Uh, They had a program at GSK at that time to fund basic research in different universities for promising translational uh, science. And we were rolling along. And now, finally, comes time to ratchet up the funding to bring this in-house and do the and do it right and mass produce the peptide do all the important control experiments and move to people unfortunately i will never forget this day i was sitting in the office with the person who is the friend of the person at gsk we were sitting in the office waiting for the phone call is it a go or no go and the answer was no go why oh it was so depressing and the reason was Spinal cord injury is a small market, and GlaxoSmithKline likes to make a lot of money. Wow. And we were studying mostly acute injury at that time. We hadn't made our animals in the basement mistake yet. Mm-hmm. So the number of people who are paralyzed in the United States each year is around 16,000. And that's an orphan market. It's, it's, it's very small compared to Alzheimer's disease or multiple sclerosis, where the numbers of patients are in the millions. And, and the amount of money to be made, obviously, in Alzheimer's disease or MS is huge compared to spinal cord injury. And so the upper level management made a decision to abandon the program. They then suggested the possibility, I think at that time, the company called Abvi, who makes Humira, makes a fortune from Humira, Abvi. And they have a lot of new drugs on the market these days. So Abvi, I think it's A-B-B-V-I-E. They suggested we talk to Abvi. And so they loved us too. And Abvi got very interested in the possibility of licensing our peptide and doing a clinical trial. And we spent another year doing experiments. And then they had a special team appointed to us and upper level management again. No go. Too small a market. They wanted us to study multiple sclerosis. And we hadn't done our research uh, using a, an MS model until later. Actually, the peptide NVG291 uh, and our peptide that we use in rats called ISP has beautiful effects in MS models. So spinal cord injury is not the only target of NVG291. The cells that make new myelin also have the same receptor. And in the MS plaque, you see the same proteoglycans all over again. 
It's repeated. AbV wanted us to already have data on multiple sclerosis, which we did not, so the project got killed. And now we have nothing. No, nobody. And time is passing, and the clock is ticking, and I'm getting older, and nothing is happening. Because Case Western you know, does not have unlimited contacts with Big Pharma. We were dormant until Harold Punnett. I can't remember exactly what year. It's been seven years. So is this 2020, around 2016? Yeah. Around 2016, I started talking to Harold Punnett. Harold is a dentist. He, he's in Canada. He is a wonderful guy. And unfortunately, his daughter-in-law was paralyzed in an accident. She fell and broke her back and became paraplegic. And Harold, the dentist, who has some knowledge about biology and science, was searching the world for something that could help his daughter-in-law. And he couldn't find anything until he happened upon our paper, which is published in 2015. And he got really excited about it. He's also an angel investor. He's done this before. It's one of his, like his hobbies to invest in startup biotech companies. And he knew some investors in Canada who might come along with him. And Harold and I talked and talked and we got along beautifully. He's a wonderful guy. He's just a nice guy, brilliant. And he wanted to start a company. And so he brought in a few other people and NerveGen was born. Wow. It took a while for Case Western to negotiate the deal. Took years, actually. Wow. That's just kind what of a way story. Case Western works. But there are several points during the negotiations that were very tense. Well, the university wanted more. The company wanted more. You know how it is. Uh, so the negotiations took a while, uh, but they were successful. Uh, I am told by the people at NerveGen they would have never walked out, ever. They, they were prepared to negotiate for as long as it took. Uh, it took a while, but eventually, thank God, NerveGen was born. And in a few weeks, the culmination of 40 years of my work is going to happen. A and the first patients with spinal cord injury are going to be injected uh, with a peptide. Wow. So fingers crossed. Actually, Mazeltov. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's not a slam dunk. You never know. Rats are small. People are big. Rats are all the same size, the same weight same genetic background, everything about white rats uh, is pretty much shared from one animal to another. Humans are all different. We don't look alike. Our genetics are different. We're different sizes, shapes. Okay. <laughs> Just the way it works. So, I hope this story is true, but you know what WD-40 is? Sure. It's one of my favorite. I just okay. on everything. So the story goes that WD-40, it represents the 40th attempt at the formula. Really? So is NVG-291 basically the 291st oh. attempt at creating this peptide? No, I don't even like that name. I wanted to name it something sexy like Regenovid. Or something like that. And <laughs> I, I, NVG is NerveGen. I, I don't know why. It's the first iteration. 
it, it's a humanized version of the rat peptide. It's designed to work the best in people. I have no idea. You'll have to ask somebody at NerveGen, why do they pick 291? I have no idea. It's actually NVG1. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully there'll be a 2, 3, and and 4, but I don't know. (laughs) Okay. And this is my last question. So, first, pardon my scientific ignorance, but I think that what the glia does is it makes these physical barriers and inhibitors that protect neurons right correct okay so now i read or heard someplace that you have license plates that say glia man oh no now it would seem to me that by making license plates that say glia man you are in fact highlighting something you're trying to undo because you're trying to end the protection of neurons and stimulate regeneration, right? So why glia, man? In the first place, I wouldn't call myself a pioneer, but in the modern age of science, that goes back to my earning my PhD, most people in the neurosciences studied neurons. And I guess it's just the way I am. I just like to do stuff that other people don't do. And I have a weird stubborn streak. So if I see something that I'm sure is right, because I see it in front of my own eyes, I become very persistent. I'm unflappable. And so I believe that the glia were important. They must be doing something other than being nurses to the neurons. That's what people thought. Glia just support the neurons. But I believed that the glia impart important information to the nerve cells. They help them work better, we now know, but also they get in the way sometimes. And one of their jobs of a glial cell called the astrocyte, which means star-shaped, astro, site means cell, which are the most abundant glial cell types in the brain. It's not a nerve cell, doesn't, doesn't fire an action potential, it's a glial cell, looks like a star, they're everywhere. The, the astrocytes have another job. And one of their jobs is to make a scar. Just like fibroblasts in your skin make a scar, you want to stop the bleeding and you don't want the infection that could occur in that site to spread all over your body, you make a scar. But we don't have fibroblasts normally in the brain. So the astrocyte plays a role in building so-called glial scar, which surrounds the area of inflammation that you might get after a a small hemorrhage or or a bump on the head. And that scar that the glia makes serves an important purpose. It walls off the area of injury so it doesn't spread all over your brain. Sometimes the scar actually responds to tumor cells that have invaded your brain. And if they trigger the scar, the tumor in your brain will be round like a golf ball. Unfortunately, glioblastoma, which is a tumor cell that's very clever, and it have fooled the astrocyte into, into not knowing it's even there, does not create scar. And unfortunately, glioblastoma migrates all over the brain. So the glial scar plays an important role. Unfortunately, it also blocks nerve regeneration. Now, can you get rid of the proteoglycans 
or get rid of the receptor on the nerve cells and not do damage to the scar so much that it allows the inflammation to spread all over your brain. And apparently, you can get rid of the proteoglycans with chondroitinase, but the, the wall-building ability of the scar still remains. Because Mother Nature has not built a scar just using proteoglycans. She also okay. makes the cells, the astrocytes, very interconnected, what are called adhesion junctions. So the astrocytes that make a scar are all welded to each other with are called adherence junctions. See, Mother Nature is smart. She doesn't use just one mechanism to build a wall. She also takes the astrocytes and makes them really big, and she makes them really convoluted shapes. No longer are they parallel or nicely shaped. They are bizarre like spaghetti. Bigger, shaped like spaghetti, all welded together <laughs> in a wall, and they make proteoglycans. One, two, three, okay. four different. Okay. So you can get rid of the proteoglycans and still have a wall. And so you don't have this okay. expanding lesion. So, so that's what Mother Nature does. Thank God we can get rid of the proteoglycans, but the wall building function is still partly there, but the nerve cells can now get through or across the wall. Okay, this is truly my last question. You've been at this for 40 years. That's right. Luckily, a student left some rats in the basement, and luckily, a dentist made contact with you. So as you look back on these 40 years, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson of Jerry Silver? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know why I am the way I am. It probably has something to do with the way I was raised by my parents. I, I don't know. Maybe it's having a Jewish mother who used to tell me crazy things that I thought were wrong. And I had a base, the way I am, on my own beliefs. Because my mother was telling me crazy things. You know how Jewish mothers are. If, if, if you don't eat enough, or you, you can go blind if you do the wrong thing, and, and all kinds of crazy things <laughs> about who you can date, who you can't date. And so I had to make up my own mind about what I see. And I've always believed if I see something in front of me with my own eyes, it's true. So that, that's how I started. I, 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 if, if I would see something that no, everyone said was wrong, even my mother, uh, I said, I'm sorry, it, it's wrong. I'm right. And I have carried that with me all my career. Uh, and if there's anything to say about who Jerry Silver is, it's that I'm stubborn. Uh, I, I, I believe in myself. Uh, and if I see something that I think is true, even if the rest of the world says I'm wrong, uh, I stick with it. And I've been doing that for, for 40 years. And the, the proteoglycan story, don't forget, people in my own department said I was studying artifact. Uh, I can't tell you a very interesting phase of my life uh, where my story came to fruition in another company, uh, which is a rags to riches to rags again story that you might be interested in. I, I was studying proteoglycans for a long time, right? Since the mid-1980s and late 1980s, and we published the first paper, 1990. So right about the end of the 1990s, another company came to Cleveland that I founded. And the company's name was Gliatech. 
because I'm Glia man. Glia Tech was the very first <laughs> biotech company in northeastern Ohio. And there was a fellow at Case Western who was just looking around for technology that could be promising and, and translational. And I told him the proteoglycan story. I said, they make barriers. But back then, Gliatech had a different story that actually went all the way to an FDA-approved product and was used in hundreds of thousands of patients. My idea back then was to build a barrier where you would actually want one and use proteoglycans to do this. Where do you want a normal barrier? If you know about nerve entrapments, for instance, you know about carpal tunnel syndrome? You've seen people with carpal tunnel, the, the median nerve and tendon get entrapped in scar. So scarring in the body is very bad. So you can get scarring in, in the uterus or around the uterus, causes infertility. You can get scarring in your abdomen that binds to your uh, GI system, and that's bad. Scarring after burns of the face or the, an operation that's gone wrong, like a tracheotomy, a big scar. So scarring is bad. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could get rid of scars inside the body? And Gliatech was born on a completely different uh, patent that I had generated. It's not important. Uh, but I told them about my idea. And what Gliatech did was to say, let's put a barrier where we want one. So if you damage a peripheral nerve, say in your elbow, say you damage your ulnar nerve, and that nerve gets entrapped in scar tissue, or if it gets entrapped in your wrist in scar tissue, that's extremely painful. So nerve entrapments uh, in the body are very common. If you cut your wrist with glass and you get scar tissue around the nerve, the median nerve, oh, it's terribly painful. It's called nerve entrapment. That scarring that tethers the nerve causes unbelievable pain. It turns out that proteoglycans inhibit not just nerve cells. They inhibit all kinds of cell types, even fibroblasts. So my idea was to make a barrier out of proteoglycans and make it into a gel. So it could be squirted into the area where the nerve damage and cover up everything. And Gliatech invented a product called ADCON, A-D-C-O-N. They were going to use it in surgery on the back after you get a discectomy and people have ruptured discs. One of the horrible things that can happen after a discectomy is nerve entrapment of the dorsal roots, which is unbelievably painful. It's called failed back syndrome. So that's what they were going to target first and other nerve entrapments. So they called this product ADCON-L. You can Google it and find out. Basically, ADCON-L was gel foam powder which is a collagenase powder, a, pro, a, a glycosaminoglycan that was synthetic called dextran sulfate, not chondroitin sulfate, and water, buffer. That was it. It made this beautiful anti-fibrotic gel. And if you have a nerve entrapment, you could go in as a surgeon, cut away the nerve, the, the adhesions. But unfortunately, the patient would get better because you cut away the scar, loosen up the nerve, but many people develop scar again. And if you go back and cut away the scar around the nerve, they get relief, pain goes away, and in six months or a year, 
Scar comes back, always worse than the time before. And after four or five surgeries to, it's called neurolysis, to free up the nerve from the scar, you can't operate anymore. And ADCON-L was invented for those patients. Amazingly, <laughs> one of the first patients in the United States was named Mr. Smith. Right around 1998, with FDA compassionate approval, Mr. Smith had five surgeries on his wrist because he had cut his median nerve. Not completely, but he had terrible scar in his wrist. He had so much pain he couldn't sleep. He wanted to have his arm amputated. And he was the first American patient to receive ADCON-L. After his fifth neurolysis surgery, he was cured. And ADCON-L was used in all kinds of interesting other types of areas where there is scarring. Tracheotomy's gone bad with scarring around the, the trachea and the larynx, scarring in the face because of dog bites. ADCON-L was fantastic. Gliatech was rolling along. They were on the NASDAQ exchange. The stock price was soaring. And then that was, that's my riches part. Rags first, riches, and then the company uh, screwed up. Uh, the company had very greedy, selfish people. Uh, you hear about these kinds of people from time to time in the United States and elsewhere, where they take a perfectly good product and ruin it because of greed. And unfortunately, that happened. It's a longer story, and you can read about it. The FDA okay. blackballed. But that was my first successful biotech company. ADCON had been used in over a half of a million operations around the world. So lots of people got better. Wow. So that was my first experience. ADCON, L, Gliatech, and an FDA-approved product within just a few years, and the company went bad and fell apart. So after Gliatech fell apart, I was very down on forming yet another company because of the bad experience that I had with Gliatech, who killed my baby. So now, my attitude, I was very scared, fearful of forming another company where the same thing could happen to me all over again. That is greed at, at the level of the co company management. Now, I am convinced and extremely happy with the upper level management at NerveGen. I, I, I'm not afraid anymore. Uh, I, I believe that now, instead of putting a barrier where we want one, we're going to get rid of a barrier where we don't want one. It's very similar, in a sense, to Gliatech, which was quite a remarkable success. They, they were predicting billion-dollar market until they screwed it all up and the company went broke. You can read all about it. There, there are lots of essays about it and the history of Gliatech. And when NerveGen came along, I had to convince myself that everybody was honest. They're not in it just for the money. They're in it because they want to really help people. Of course, helping people can be profitable. I don't have any problems with the company making a great profit. That means they're successful and people will be getting better. But I believe that NerveGen is really meaningful and they are going to target spinal cord injury first. So I'm so happy. So finally, after all these years, they're, they're going to target. And with the failure of GSK, the failure of AbbVie, finally, with a a startup biotech company in Vancouver, I have hope. They're not going to screw it up. Now, your mother will be proud. Yeah, right. <laughs> May she rest in peace. <laughs>
<laughs> I hope you enjoyed learning about the advanced work of Jerry Silver, truly a pioneer in the field of spinal cord injuries. His discoveries and explorations have shed new light on possible treatments for conditions that are life-changing. This makes him truly a remarkable person. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. My thanks to Merge 4, the coolest sock company, for sponsoring this episode. Remember, use the promo code FRIENDOFGUY to get 30% off. My thanks to the incredible Remarkable People team. Jeff C., Shannon Hernandez, Tessa Neismer, her sister, Madison Neismer, the drop-in queen of Santa Cruz, Fallon Yates, Louise Magana, and Alexis Nishimura. Until next week, mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.